You know this story. Jesus and his followers enter the city called Nain. They are at the head of a great crowd, says Luke, and while they are on the road, they intersect the path of a funeral procession, followed by yet another great crowd. A widow's son has died, leaving the widow, his mother, at the mercy of the economic privation so common to the times. Jesus, says Luke, had compassion. I find that a curiously weak translation of a powerful verb, splanknizomai, which has to do with the moving of the innards. It's what we might call a gut-wrenching reaction. After bidding the woman not to weep, a silly command at a funeral, if ever there was one, Jesus then commands the, the young man to rise, and when he does, he gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all, says Luke, and that's where the story ends. It's a fair question to ask, what in the world is Luke trying to say with this narrative? Is it to prove that Jesus has some kind of miraculous power over death? Does it anticipate Jesus' own resurrection? Is it to claim that the ministry of Elijah is now fulfilled in that of Christ? After all, Elijah raised a similar widow's son in 1 Kings 17, the widow of Zarephath. Is it an eschatological claim, therefore, that as Elijah comes, so also comes the Messiah, that as the dead are raised, so also comes the kingdom of the dead? I suspect it's all of that stuff and probably a great deal more. In fact, I suspect that we probably bring to it all sorts of things that we neither think about nor speak about. And I suspect that much of what we want to say about this painting, we don't have words to say, and so we'll have to use some other way which is what I propose to do with you this morning, not explicate this text in some sort of classical exegetical method, but rather show you pictures. Because, as they say, a picture is worth at least a thousand words, and if that's the case, we'll be out of here considerably sooner this morning. <laughs> the painting on the screen is a painting by Domenico Fiasella, known to art historians as Il Sarzana, the man from Sarzana. It's an early 16th century example of Italian Baroque art. Now, I'm not an art historian, so everything I say needs to be taken with a grain of salt, especially by those of you who are. My apologies in advance. But what I know about the Baroque is that it, in particular its art, is that it's full of drama and passion. Paintings are full of careful, realistic detail. The sweep of the line of the blue robe that Jesus wears, the ripple in the muscled forearm of the pallbearer. It's as though some great passion, some powerful, maybe even explosive movement is captured photographically and frozen on the canvas. It is as though we are in the midst of some great movement and are stopped eternally at this particular instant. Look at the musculature of that forearm I mentioned a moment ago, or the right leg of the kneeling pallbearer. 
He's, it's as though he's ready to leap, ready to react to what he is seeing, even perhaps before he has understood what he is seeing. Jesus, depicted in quite contrasting colors, a softer blue, a striking lavender tunic, seems almost to be holding him back. And then there is the center of the painting, the young boy who's been raised from the dead. His skin still bears the pallor of death. And now he's been called back to a life he had abandoned. It's almost as though he's curious. He looks at Jesus as though not quite understanding who he is, what's happened, or what is coming next. All of these are caught in the light, as it were, in this painting. Italian Baroque art is characterized by a term I'll probably mispronounce, chiaroscuro, the light and dark effect, where the emphasis is on that which is illumined and, and leaps off the canvas at you. But what's equally interesting is what's in the dark. And in this painting, what's in the dark is the widow. Maybe you can see her right here. All you can really see is her left eye. It is as though she is consumed in a darkness that is about to erase her. Fiasella captures for us this moment of resuscitation. And some of the reaction that seems so obvious, but somehow nobody seems to know quite how to respond. Everyone is tensed, waiting, and still very much in the dark. Here's another painting, also Italian Baroque. Only five years after Fiasella painted his, this is Mario Minniti's treatment of the same text. But it's quite different than is Fiasella's. Minniti populates his scene with a great crowd, picking up on Luke's comment that there were two large crowds, one following Jesus, one in the funeral procession. But what's interesting to me about this crowd, all of it, regardless of where it comes from, is the way it's dressed. It's dressed anachronistically. That is to say, all of the people in the painting, save one, wear the clothing appropriate not to the time of Jesus, first century Palestine, but to the time of Miniti, the artist. It is as though he is lifting this moment out of the biblical context, dropping it into the current, and inviting us to see ourselves as part of the crowd. Only the red cloak of Jesus seems somehow time appropriate. In this painting, the boy now sits upright and he is older and he's holding himself as though the chill of death is still on him, but his, his skin color is less deathly and more human than before. And the mother, in Fiasella's painting, so consumed with darkness, she almost disappears. In Miniti's painting, she's in full light. But look where she is, off at the extreme edge of the painting and looking the other way, not paying attention to what's happening before us, not paying attention to the resuscitation of her own son, but pointing its direction, but looking somewhere else as though she were summoning someone else's attention. Every face in this painting is only partly illumined. Interestingly enough, even the face of Jesus. 
It is as though all of these folk are partly in the dark and partly in the light, partly clear and partly still in mystery. The only figure who seems more fully illumined than all the others is the boy himself. And he looks at Jesus with a kind of longing, as though he has been both brought back to something he loved and taken from something he would rather have had. He now sits blinking, bewildered, in the light of a life he does not understand. Does Maniti intend for us to see him as a symbol raised by Christ, raised in Christ from our sin and our dying, but unsure of where we are going next? Here's another. This looks at first glance like an ancient Orthodox icon, but a little closer inspection will quickly betray that impression. It's 20th century American. Published by the Ancient Faith Publishing Company, which is an Orthodox publishing house. You can see that down at the bottom. This is, I guess you'd call it a faux icon. It has all of the two-dimensional iconography of classical icons, but none of the dark light shading we've been looking at in the Italian Baroque. Gone is that sense of drama and passion. Gone is the sense that somehow we've frozen a passionate moment and are looking into its characters. Instead, what we see is a kind of staged moment where all the characters stand erect and stiff with posed fingers and hands. All that is except for one. And that one is the widow. Unlike both Fiesella and Miniti, who either obscure the widow or force her to the side, she is front and center. In fact, she's what draws your attention in this icon. The woman has her hair in her two hands as though tearing it out in the universal symbol of mourning. She is captured in an overwhelming grief that somehow curiously seeps through the two-dimensionality of this icon. Somehow curiously, she is in the midst of that grief even while the source of the grief is being resuscitated. Her son, who is out of her range of vision, is sitting up in the bier that once carried his body. He is alive and she is yet mourning. All the life in this scene is in the widow, and yet that life is poured out in anguish. It is as though she is unaware of what's happening. And I cannot help but wonder if the iconographer does not intend us to enter this scene through her grief to be caught in the agony of loss, forever one heartbeat short of restoration. One more painting. This one is the work of a Reformation-era artist, Lucas Cranach the Younger. You may be familiar with Lucas Cranach the Elder, whose portrait of Luther, alongside Hans Holbein's Luther portrait, are one of the two most famous representations of the great reformer. Lucas Cranach the Younger, his son, was also famous for portraiture, but he did a few other scenes, one of which is this depiction 
of the healing of the widow of Nian, of the son of the widow of Nian. It's a century older than the Italian Baroque, and it has none of that sort of chiaroscuro, passionate kind of representation. In Cronach's vision, a long, black-clad funeral procession winds its way out of a castle and along a road where it is met by Jesus and his followers in the low foreground of the painting. Unfortunately, Jesus' followers have been obscured by damage to the corner of the painting, so you cannot see them with the clarity you can see the rest of the funeral procession. But note that fully half this painting has nothing to do with the funeral procession. Instead, what we see is the sky, a vast open sky without a cloud, a painting of the castle glacis and tower, and the skyline of a city far in the distance. <laughs> Closer up, we see a wagon trundling its way under the whip of its rider along a road between the city and the castle. We see a dog and a cat. There's the dog, there's the cat. Cavorting in the pathway, we see a fisherman dangling his line from off the wall into the moat. We see people walking, children, or just strolling along the pathway, rutted by the passage of more than one cart. It is as though in this painting, Cranach wants us to know that even with Jesus raising the son of the widow of Nain to life down in the low foreground, the rest of the world goes on without even so much as the foreknowledge that it's going on. The rest of the world is simply busy keeping on with keeping on. It is as though no one has quite yet processed what's going on beneath their very feet. They've not understood the moment in which they live. Four hundred years after Cronach painted his painting, Thomas Merton, the very same Thomas Merton we know from Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, the author of the great autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, wrote a poem. He entitled it The Widow of Nyam. He used the older English Bible spelling of the town name that ends with an M rather than an N. Merton's poem, The Widow of Nyam. Well, maybe it's best just to read it. I've put it on the screen, but it's also attached to your order of service if it's easier for you to read there. Poems speak in their own voice, so best to read rather than so much to tell you about it. The men that cut their graves in the gray rocks go down more slowly than the sun upon their dusty country. White as the wall, the weepers leave the town to be the friends of grief and follow to a new tomb, a widow's sorrow. The men with hands as hard as rope, some smell of harvests, some of nets, the strangers come up the hill more slowly than the seasons of the year. Why do you walk in funerals, you men of Nyam? Why do you go down to graves with eyes like winters and your cold faces clean as cliffs? See how we come, our brows are full of sun, 
Our smiles are fairer than the wheat and hay. Our eyes are saner than the sea. Lay down your burden at our four roads crossing and learn a wonder from the Christ, our traveler. Oh, you will say that those old times are all dried up like water since the great God went walking on a road to Niam. How many hundred years has slept again in death that widow's son? After the marvel of his miracle, he did not rise for long and sleeps forever. And what of the men of the town? What have the desert winds done to the dust of the poor weepers and the widow's friends? The men that cut their graves in the gray rocks spoke to the sons of God upon the four cross roads. Men of Gennesareth, who climb our hill as slow as spring or summer, Christ is your master, and we see his eyes are Jordan's. His hands and feet are wounded, and his words are wine. He has let death baptize the one who stirs and wakens in the beer we carry, that we may read the cross and Easter in his rising, and learn the endless heaven promised to all the widow churches risen children. Merton's imagery is stunning. Go down more slowly than the sun. Men with hands as hard as ropes, with eyes like winters, your faces clean as cliffs, the universal symbol of men mourning, having shaved off their beards. The grave cutters follow their way out of the city, living out their lives of death in a dusty country. They wind their processional loss and grief out from the city gates toward the places of the dead. But then Merton shows us the followers of Jesus, whose brows are full of the sun, whose smiles are fairer than wheat and hay, whose eyes are saner than the sea. <laughs> The two processions, one of life, one of death, meet at the four cross roads. And at the intersection stands the Christ, our traveler. But before we get too comfortable with what's going to happen, Merton interrupts us. And he asks, he sort of lays an aside on us as though he were breaking the fourth wall in a theater and speaking directly to the audience. And he acknowledges our doubts poses the question that's in the backs of our minds, whether we admit it or not, so what? So what if the widow's son is raised? Is he not still dead? Did not death finally win? How many hundred years has slept again in death that widow's son after the marvel of his miracle? He did not rise for long and sleeps forever. Merton's answer is in the last stanza. Christ is your master, he says. He has let death baptize the one who stirs and wakens in the beer, that we may read the cross and Easter in this rising and learn the endless heaven promised to all the widow churches' risen children. 
It's a promise, maybe more than it is a reality. And so there is this mixture, strange, odd, of, sor of sorrow and hope. Burton and Cranach understand this, both. They see that the focus of moment is not the, the focus of this moment is not the miracle, it's not the crowd, it's not the passionate reaction or the benighted faces. Rather, it is the Christ who travels between life and the grave, who is the connection between the widow and her son. Jesus is the passage between life and death, between hope and the hopeless, between new possibility and the end of the line. Christ met at the four crossroads of the funeral procession, offers us a way to travel another path than the path among the tombs. None of this, of course, is to suggest that because of Christ we do not suffer death or grief. The world goes on unabated in its living and dying. Cranach knew this. And so he painted the widow's son raised, even though the bustle of the world around it goes on completely unawares. Merton knew it, too. What of the men of the town, he asks, what have the desert winds done to the, death, to the dust of the poor weepers and the widow's friends? But both Merton and Cranach suggest that Christ reaches across that barrier between life and death, and through his presence somehow gives us back to each other. In his eyes, we read the Jordans that run between this world and the next. Christ is our communion of the saints, in whose words we taste the wine poured out for us at this and every table. So which of these paintings is the truth? The answer, of course, is they all are. They and countless others like them, each in its own peculiar way. There is no one truth, but many. The great gift of art is that it is always true, even when the truths stand in tension with each other, even when poised like the pallbearer in Fiasella's painting, they seem ready to leap at something that must be true, even in Miniti's widow, when they seem to point in a completely different direction than what everyone else thinks. Art always finds the truth it finds, even if the truth is that we grieve at the very moment we should be rejoicing. Art knows that there is hope to be read in a raised boy at the four crossroads of death, a hope that belongs to all the widow church's risen children. And perhaps for this day, and for all our days, that's enough. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,